Welcome to Crossing the Chasm. I'm delighted today to be joined by Ellen Kaler. Ellen became the executive director of the Vermont Sustainable Jobs Fund, VSJF, in late 2005. The VSJF nurtures the economic prosperity, ecological health, and social connectivity of people, businesses, organizations, and communities in Vermont for the benefit and well-being of all who live there by providing business assistance, value chain facilitation, network development, and strategic planning in agriculture and food systems, forest products, waste management, renewable energy, and environmental technology sectors. Prior to joining the VSJF, Ellen was the executive director of the Peace and Justice Center in Burlington. She is a graduate of Bucknell University with the Bachelor of Arts in Political Science and from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University with the Masters of Public Administration. Ellen currently serves on the boards of the Working Lands Enterprise Fund, the Vermont Workforce Development Board, Energy Action Network, and the University of Vermont Cal's Board of Advisors. She also currently serves on the Governor's Commission on the Future of Vermont Agriculture. As you can tell by that overview, she has a lot of experience. She has a lot to say. She is really authoritative and well-versed on all these issues. She's got a broad background. I chose to focus today on her work and expertise in agriculture, and I learned a lot. I really appreciated talking with her. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks for listening. Ellen Kaler, welcome to Crossing the Chasm. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. I appreciate you making the time. I'm looking forward to talking with you. And to begin, I'd love to just start with a question about the the podcast name and so forth, which is, how do you see the chasm or chasms in society as they relate to the work you're doing around food and food systems? Sure, great question. Well, really, you know, every single person on this planet needs to be able to eat in order to live. So the extent to which we have such incredible poverty globally uh, in so many developing countries, but even here in the United States, supposedly the richest country on earth, to have 9 10% of the population being food insecure, and then if you add in the demographics of race, um, you have folks uh, in uh, Black, Asian, Indigenous, Hispanic households that can have food insecurity upwards of almost 20% of the households, and you, which means that there's a lot of kids living in households that are food insecure, which means that when people are food insecure, uh, it, it produces a lot of physical anxiety because you're hungry all the time. It makes it harder to concentrate if you're a child in school or if you're an adult at work. Uh, and it leads, and, and then that lack of nutrition because of a lack of calories or a lack of nutritious calories means that uh, you're more prone to health uh, challenges and, and complications uh, to one's health. It can also lead to a uh, reduction in your, in your longevity, your expected life, uh, life on this planet. So uh, it has a lot of implications that we need to have uh, our societal norm should be that everybody has the right uh, to sufficient quantities, caloric, nutritious, healthy, fresh food so that they can live their full life and they need to have that accessible to them. They needed to have it available to them. Uh, They need to have it be culturally appropriate to them so that it's not just all one type of food, but that there's a a diversity and a mix of food available to everybody and people should be able to afford it. Uh, And if they can't afford it because of other uh, issues going on in terms of, uh, you know, not having enough income, for instance, if they're working or if they're not able to work, uh, then we need, then society has an obligation, I think, to ensure that everybody has enough food. And we do that through public policy, food stamps, for instance, that benefits um, and other uh, public resources that are made available. Because the bottom line is, uh, they're all human beings, and all human beings need to be able to eat. So you're making an important point here that food is a requirement, but not everybody's getting it. 
I want to ask a very broad question about why that is, and that's beyond the scope of this. And we could have a whole podcast just on that. But I'm curious, just if, if you step back and sort of think about the food landscape, why is it that in such a wealthy country, why are people insecure? And what's wrong with our food system in general, from your point of view? Well, that's a big, big question, a lot of, of uh, components to it, right? One is the social inequality of uh, in our advanced uh, capitalist society where we have such uh, incredible um, income disparity and you have so many people who even despite work are unable to pay their bills and, and meet their most basic needs, one of which is food. And then you have an, a, a number of people in society that for any number of reasons, they, they may have a, a, a disability, they may be older, they may have a fixed income, um, they may be children, whatever it is, that, um, that they're just not able to uh, access uh, enough food. Um, and they could also be living in what's known as food deserts, right? There are lots of, of people who tend to be in, uh, in uh, income tracks, uh, sorry, census tracks, living in areas with a high degree of poverty. And when you look around at the stores that are available for these folks that live in these um, communities to access food, uh, it, it can be really challenging. Either they don't have uh, transport, reliable transportation to physically get to, to where the food is located, or in some cases, the stores in their areas don't really sell a lot, sell much, if any, fresh food. So for instance, one of the things that we uh, found uh, across New England, uh, for instance, in the six New England states, is there's about $914 general and dollar, dollar value stores. Now, those stores do not sell fresh food. They, they sell uh, typically uh, ultra-processed, high-caloric, uh, often very unhealthy uh, shelf-stable food, they might sell milk and maybe eggs, but there's very, there's like no produce, there's no fruits or vegetables, right? And so um, these are the stores that are, that are in neighborhoods where people live, and thus they don't even have the ability to, to uh, purchase uh, healthy food if they have the, the income to be able to, uh, to do so. So there is, uh, and, and some of the reasons for that is, is uh, very historic uh, in terms of redlining practices in our public policy that, and urban renewal that started back in the 50s and 60s. Um, structural racism um, is also a big, uh, a big factor here um, for people's ability to access the kinds of food that uh, is healthy, nutritious, um, and supports um, them being um uh, being healthy. So I'm really delighted that you're bringing up those questions because a lot of people would just say either this is just people need to figure out how to get food, to get access to it, to get a job and have money, or it's just a matter of supply and demand. If, if enough people want good quality food, then the market will sort of provide that. You're taking a different perspective on that. Uh, what? How would you uh, respond to somebody who just used those arguments for how we should deal with our food system? Well, part of the part of the other structural challenge is that uh, since the the really uh, for sure the 1970s, uh, we have had what is commonly known in this country as having a, a cheap food policy, meaning that uh, it used to be back uh, at the turn of the you know into the early 1900s, people were spending upwards of a third of their income on food, and um, and that meant then there was less, there was a little, there was a much fewer dollars available for other types of expenses. So as society progressed and there's more technology and time-saving things and um, things like refrigerators and microwaves and um, uh, time-saving uh, appliances, uh, it meant that people were not as tied to having to spend all of their available funds on on acquiring food, which often meant they were raising it. You know, they had big gardens in the back, and they were putting food by, or they were um, 
uh, had chickens in their backyard and they, and, and that was their a main source of protein for them. So as society progressed all through the 1900s, you had, you had this uh, ma- massive migration happening from rural uh, to urban communities. So then people didn't have the ability to grow their own food. And so you needed the ability of these folks um, to, who were then going to be um, entering more, into more industrial or other types of, of non-farm related work to, to have the ability to get food since they weren't providing it for themselves. And so in order to pay for that, um, you, it was beneficial to, to, for the, uh, to think about having food costs as a percentage of your, of your total available dollars to spend on, on, on whatever you needed for your life to be as low as possible, to, to bring it down from, say, 30% to, say, 10 or 12%, because then you had more f- money from your work, your wages, to put towards other types of expenses. So we had this cheap food policy, but in the process of doing so, the only way that that would work out from a financial standpoint for the producers were for producers to get larger and larger. So what we saw was um, uh, the USDA uh, secretary at the time in the 70s saying it's about getting big or get out. That was, that was the basic notion uh, in terms of commercial agriculture, industrial agriculture, is, is that you had to get bigger and bigger. And so we went from having um, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of family farms to, I actually don't know what the total number is here uh, across the United States right now, but much, many, many, many fewer um, uh, family farms um, so the, the nature of farming drastically changed. It also changed in terms of mechanization. It, um, of course, changed with the introduction of genetically modified uh, seeds. And um, what we've seen over the last 50 years um, is a massive consolidation in the production of food. It is now less than 2% of the population is actually producing the food in our country when it used to be a much, much bigger uh, percentage. And so what we've then also seen in parallel is not just food production being consolidated uh, into fewer and fewer uh, farms, but uh, oftentimes owned the, the actual uh, raw commodities are owned by large multinational corporations who contract with farmers to actually grow specifically for them uh, in a certain at a certain spec, this has happened in in livestock as well. And then, of course, you have what's been happening the last fifty years is a consolidation uh, with in the in the processing of food, in the manufacturing of food, in the distribution of food, and then the and in the grocery uh, sale of food. So all along the way, we have had uh, fewer and fewer uh, large, very large corporations owning these components, these parts of the food system, which has put downward price pressure on farmers. And, um, and while it, on some level it has kept food prices relatively stable and low, it, in, the, the basic economics is that you have to find um, all sorts of ways to make the production of that food more and more uh, efficient, which often leads to lower and lower quality of food. And that's when you start then getting into things that are like high caloric, ultra processed, lots of sugar, lots of salt, lots of fat uh, as a way of filling up bellies so they're not hungry, but not actually providing the nutrition that is that the human body requires. What strikes me is you said something earlier about how this has really shifted over time and people live differently and eat differently now. And I'm not asking you to speak for all Americans, but but can you speak a little bit about how this has affected people's perceptions of food? I don't want to overgeneralize, right? But the 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 reality is that we are spending a smaller percentage of our uh, our annual spending on our lives, you know, like food, transportation, housing, et cetera, we're spending a smaller percentage on food. So in 2021, for instance, the average uh, American, this is across all uh, types of consumers, 
was about 12.4% was spent on food. 33% was on housing, 16% was on transportation, for instance, 5% on entertainment, 1.2% on personal care products, just as, as, as a point of reference, right? So we're spending less of our total available annual spending on food than what we did, say, 50 years ago. And that has been, that meant that we've been able to buy other things. So then the question becomes how, how distant are people from understanding what goes into making the food, producing the food that they eat, right? So as we've gone from, uh, I don't know what it was back in the 1930s, but you know, like probably 50, 60% of the population is still involved in some kind of agricultural practices or at least living rurally and being able to understand where food comes from. So now 2% uh, being farmers. It means that we are, those of us who live in suburbs and in cities are, are much farther afield from understanding how food is produced, how it is moved, how it, where does it land, how, how is it marketed, how is it sold. And so as a result, I think generally speaking, we don't tend to value it as much because we don't, we don't have that personal connection to it as much. Now that's not across the board because there's an awful lot of people in the country who do in fact have a very strong connection to food and it's from a quality standpoint um, who really do care about where their food comes from, who's producing it, under what conditions, to what extent are, are people who are producing the food uh, earning enough uh, for themselves to afford uh, to eat enough, right? There's an awful lot of farmers who are food insecure as well because the when you're selling into a, 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 gen, a generic <laughs> commodity marketplace, uh, you're a price taker and not a price maker. Uh, and that's why the rise of, of, of farmers markets and CSAs and um, uh, farm-to-table restaurants and local food cooperatives those are places where people tend to have a still maintain or newly newly acquired appreciation for fresh quality food where it comes from. They meet farmers, they understand them, they learn about and understand where does food come from, what goes into producing it, and why that matters. And and so. Uh, you know, I, I what I know best is Vermont, and what I and the next best is New England. So I really shouldn't be commenting too much on the whole country, um, but uh, because what we're trying to do here in New England is to uh, get to a point where thirty percent of what we produce in the region is also consumed in the region, uh, and we've got a target of thirty percent by twenty by twenty thirty. So the, the notion here is to have a more robust regional food system across the six states that make up New England so that we are more food secure as a population when, so that we can better weather climate events, natural disasters caused by climate change, pandemics, whatever it is, that we have more control over the actual supply of our food supply. That's what we're aiming for here in New England that I think is uh, unique and different, um, not aware of, of other parts of the country that are really taking that multi-state, sort of a regionally defined, geographically defined part of the country to really try to move the needle on a more regional food system uh, being developed. Yeah, and I want to get to that in a minute because I think you all are at the forefront of having this really ambitious plan. I mean, just getting back to your earlier points, it is interesting. I've noted that there's more and more people watching cooking shows than ever and fewer and fewer people actually cooking food, which um, it speaks to this relationship we have with food. And you mentioned that there are more farmers markets and, and farm to table and so forth. I guess I'm wondering, because you also mentioned earlier sort of the racialized element in the history of class and redlining, is there are some people who argue this whole movement is white, affluent, just for the well-to-do. How, how do you see it? Well, I, I think that's, I think there's an element of that that is, is 
true, not that it should be, though, right? This is, as I said at the, at the outset, everybody, no matter what your demographic uh, situation is, no matter your race, your age, your gender, uh, your income level, you should be able to have access to the type of food that you want. And I think one of the structural reasons for why uh, this has tended to be a lot of uh, white, more affluent people uh, becoming more engaged in a local food system is one, they have uh, just greater overall capacity because they're not as, they're not necessarily having two or three jobs to make ends meet. So they have more time. You know, it takes more time to go to the farmer's market or to go to a farm down the road to pick up your CSA share rather than uh, going to the, the local grocery store around the corner, right? There's a, there is a time element here. Um, it is the case that um, depending on, on whether uh, certain foods are in season or not, uh, local food can be perceived at, and in some cases is more expensive than what you might get in a, in a large national chain supermarket. But that's in part because the local food is actually uh, priced at what it costs to, to actually produce it rather than in the case of a lot of, of, of these larger farms. Um, if you're a large farm, you're, you're covering your fixed costs over a, a much larger sale, a much larger volume, right? When you're a smaller farm, uh, which is tends to be the ones that are doing farmer's markets, um, you still have a lot of fixed costs, but your but your overall volume of product to be sold is less. And so the actual unit cost of that food is going to be higher. And then add into that in the Northeast, for instance, with our uh, climate that we are, we're not year-round growers in most cases. There's season extension happening, but um, and some indoor growing happening. But generally, we have a defined growing season. And so um, part of it is... Um, is that the other, of course, very important structural uh, problem that we have yet to face uh, as a nation is the fact that uh, most uh, farmers of color have had uh, the inability to get the loans and the um, support and the access to land to, to actually be farmers. There's a lot of people of color in the country that want to be farming that cannot access land at an affordable price, nor can they get the loans, again, because of the structural uh, way in which we have excluded people of color from accessing capital in this country, um, uh, that that is something that needs to get addressed big time. And it's starting to happen in pockets in different places. Um, there is a, a, a Southern rural cooperative that's primarily African-American um, in the, in the South that have a cooperative and they're really doing an amazing job of, of strengthening their ability to, to be successful farmers. Uh, here in the, in New England, there is a, a New England farmers of color land trust that has been developed and they've been doing a lot to help uh, young uh, new and beginning uh, people of color, BIPOC uh, farmers to get onto land so that they can actually enter into the marketplace and that they can, or, or, and or uh, can feed their community in, in, um, in and around them. So there's a lot of those uh, issues that have, you can't just isolate it and say, well, this is primarily a, you know, a fad of, of, of wealthy white people. Um, it may have started a little bit like that, but it can't continue, and it's and it's not uh, ultimately what we're what we're striving to to create in an alternative food system that is much more uh, equitable, uh, racially just, and um, really truly meets the needs of all. Thank you so much. That is a really nice overview, and you've set the stage uh, really well. I want to pick up on that and just start shifting a bit, and I'd love to hear. Can you just give us a sense of agriculture in Vermont and in New England? It's, it seems to me that it's a it's a relatively rural area. There's lots of good farming. Can you just give us a sense and paint us a picture? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, generally speaking, uh, in terms of the size of the farms in New England compared to, say, the Midwest or the Central Valley, California, we we are small. We have small farms. 
even our largest farms in New England uh, would probably be considered small in comparison to the Midwest and, and the Central Valley uh, of California. So it, it is a totally different scale and therefore has different needs in terms of capital, has different um, challenges in terms of accessing the market, which tends to be dominated by the largest farms uh, and multinationals in the country. Um, the cost of per acre of land in New England tends to be a lot higher. So it makes it harder for new and beginning farmers that don't come from farm families uh, and thus are maybe inheriting the family farm. Um, it's harder for folks who haven't grown up in it to, to get into it. Um, the, the, the capital costs, the upfront capital costs are quite, um, can be quite uh, a big hurdle. Um, so we tend to be, uh, in Vermont, we are dominated uh, by the dairy industry. Um, we have, uh, dairy represents about 65% of all of the agricultural sales. Interestingly, while uh, Americans in general are, are drinking less fluid milk, because they have a much wider range of beverages now than they ever did before, uh, the actual consumption of dairy products has increased in large part because of cheese, and yogurt, and other value-added dairy products has actually increased. So the overall dairy industry um, has been consuming generally about the same amount of overall uh, uh, what starts off as fluid uh, milk. Um, we have a lot of diversified farms in Vermont, so meaning that they have a, a wide range of, of vegetables and they have uh, sometimes also have uh, smaller livestock like uh, sheep, goats, pigs, chickens, uh, beef cattle, some, a lot of which is raised on grass or pasture raised as opposed to there. We don't have in Vermont, for instance, we don't have any queso feedlots like they have out in, Cal in Colorado and California and places where you see, you know, there's been often in the movies where you, they'll have like 20, 30,000 head um, basically with, um, standing outside in a, in a mud pit, basically, of their, their own manure. Um, that's, that is not the type of agriculture we have here in Vermont. We are very grass-based. If there is um, grain-fed, it's still uh, done so in a way that, you know, they're, they're often still on grass for a good chunk of the, at least the summer months. We have, also in Vermont, we have a lot of, of value-added food manufacturing. Uh, tends to be more specialty foods. We have a lot of maple. You know, we're the largest maple producer in the in the in the country in terms of volume. Uh, Canada produces more than we do, but we are the the, the largest in the U.S. So it's a it's a real mixture, but it still represents it's about ten to about ten percent of our total state gross state product is in the food system in some way. And that can be production agriculture, it's distribution, it's food manufacturing, it's sales, restaurants, food service. So we have uh, about 62,000 uh, people in Vermont. We have a population of, uh, of um, 640,000 live in Vermont and 61,000 are involved in the food system. So it's about 10% of the population that's employed in the food system. And again, our gross state sales are about 10%, 11 11%. So it's it's still quite a lot of money uh, that is circulated in the food system. It's a big part of, of our economy, to be sure. Uh, it really defines uh, our visual landscape. Uh, because of being an animal agriculture state pr primarily, it means that we, uh, what people think of as Vermont, of having um, fields, open fields, uh, bounded by woods and mountains, uh, sort of the iconic Vermont landscape, is made possible because of, in large part, because of dairy-related agriculture or beef, uh, cattle, like large animal agriculture that requires a lot of land because of the need to, for feed for the non-grass-growing times of the year, you know, for hay and corn and corn silage and that kind of thing. 
And thank you for painting that picture. That's really nice. And you mentioned earlier sort of the plans and policies that Vermont is moving forward. And I was looking into this a bit and noticed that you have a a farm to plate program and some ambitious statewide policies. Can you give us a sense of how the state is approaching this shift in agriculture? Yeah. So back in um, 2009, the Vermont legislature uh, um, passed what was then what is known as the Farm to Plate Investment Program which is, and then passed my organization, the Vermont Sustainable Jobs Fund, to create a 10-year strategic plan for strengthening and growing our food system um, and uh, had some outcomes that they wanted to see and and then asked us to to do that work. So we conducted an 18-month public engagement process, put together the first uh, 10-year strategic plan, launched that in 2011, and then created what's called the Farm to Plate Network, of organizations across the state, nonprofits, for-profit, educational institutions, government, um, capital providers, all together, working together in a, in a collaborative way to try to implement the goals of that plan. And then in 2019, uh, we approached the legislature and said, well, the 10 years is almost up. Do you want us to do it again? And they said yes. So in 2021, we released the second Farm to Plate Strategic Plan that covers the the time period of 2021 to 2030. And we have 15 goals. uh, And one of the markers that we, uh, aspirations that we have, one of the goals we have is to get to 25% local food consumption by 2030. So I mentioned that the six state regional number was goal target was 30% by 2030. In Vermont, we're looking to try to just have Vermont our little itty bitty state of 640,000 people be at 25% by 2030. When we did our last uh, count, we have a local food counts methodology that we conduct every few years. And, and um, in 2020, we, we estimated that we were at about 16% local food consumption. Uh, and so we have a, a bit of a ways to go to get to 25%. So we've got to, you know, really expand the number of, of people who are spending more of their food dollars, making the choice to spend those food dollars uh, on locally produced foods. Back in 2011, we started at 5%. So we went from 5 to 16% in 10 years. And now we're looking at going from 16 to 25% in, in, um, by 2030. So you're making progress. And you know, there's just a lot of people who are super interested in food and food-related issues. I'm wondering if you can give us some specifics about how you actually make interventions in communities and states so that people are eating more local food. What, what's going on on the ground? You have to hit it from so many different angles. So we have one of the best uh, farm to school uh, programs in the country. We're a, a national leader in getting local food into our K through 12 schools, but then also importantly, and in some cases more importantly, uh, actually introducing young people to local food and and to understanding where it comes from and doing that that agricultural literacy work so that uh, they learn about where their food comes from and value it more. So you know there's junior iron chef competitions and there's uh, cooking classes and menu development classes and taste testing and stuff with young people all geared towards better understanding uh, their, their interest in food and where it comes from, introducing them to fa- local farms and such. Uh, we also have a very strong farm-to-institution movement in this in the state, as well as the region. And farm-to-institution means it, it would include the K-12 schools, but it also includes colleges and universities. It includes hospitals, prisons, child care and elder care facilities, you know, any place where there's a lot of people being fed uh, in, in different ways. So uh, here in Vermont, for instance, um, Sodexo, which is a food service management company, has the contracts with uh, most of the college campuses in the state, including University of Vermont, which is the largest. So they're producing about 34,000 meals a day across the state of young people or in college universities um, settings. And they made a commitment of getting to 25% uh, local food sourcing that, that they're just 
that's what their aspiration is to just be able to get to that point. They, they fairly easily got to 20%. It's a little harder to get to 25%. Um, but that's what the commitment is that they've made. And so that involves them helping them to find farmers and food manufacturers who are interested in selling into uh, the Sodexo uh, vendor system, right? You have to be approved, an approved vendor. So we did a lot of work early on with uh, working with Sodexo to make more transparent what it takes to become an approved vendor by uh, Sodexo so that farmers and food manufacturers could better learn what they needed to do on their side in order to be able to sell to Sodexo. Uh, another approach that we do here in Vermont that we're trying to hopefully get other uh, states in the region to do is to really hone in and focus on what's called what's known as independently owned grocery stores. So the non-big chain. So not price, not not Stop and Shop, not Kroger's, but your uh, our state state specific food cooperatives and regional grocers like Hannaford's or uh, Star Market, for instance, Market Basket uh, in Massachusetts, for instance. We have uh, Associated Grocers uh, of New England is a, is a distributor of, of foods that, um, uh, that also own some stores, but, but they're regionally based. And these, they have five stores that they own in Vermont, for instance. And they've been developing a very strong local food sourcing program and our food co-ops, uh, they can have 30 to 40% of all the products in their stores be our locally sourced products. So you have to hit it from a lot of different angles, right? Because we need to have it so that young people and people in, 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 at hospitals or in schools, colleges, that they have access to local food. And we, have, we can make inroads there because we can develop relationships with the people who are sourcing, they're actually buying the food into their institution. And then we need to have the strategy of getting into independently owned grocery stores, food co-ops, and eventually the larger regional chain with, uh, with getting sourcing in more local and regionally produced food. And the consumer has a, could, can actually play a, a, a good role in that and that they can ask for it. You know, most of us go into a regular grocery store and just assume that what's there is just all there is, and and we don't have any ability to influence what is being presented as an option. And that's not actually the case. Um, consumers don't tend to be organized in groups, so we don't tend to try to figure out like, well, how could we how could we put pressure on regional grocery store chains so that all of the fresh produce in our stores, at least half of the year is coming from local and regionally sourced farms. There is no, there's no organized way, organized effort to do that. But that's a key thing that we should be thinking about. So you, you've hit on two things that are quite important. You started this talk by really laying out a lot of the problems and barriers and challenges. And you've also laid out the sort of pathway forward that we need to have people more engaged and demanding different kinds of things. Can you speak a little bit about how you all are trying to engage the public to try to move this program forward so that there is more local food that's available? A few years ago, for about four years, we ran what we called Rooted in Vermont, which was and which was actually a consumer awareness campaign to basically celebrate all of the ways that Vermonters are already engaged in the local food system. And that can include people who hunt and fish and have gardens and put food by, as well as people that purchase from their local farm stand and, or have a CSA membership or shop at a local food co-op or, you know, make sure that when they go to restaurants that they're really looking for those products on the menu that, that, where it's stated on the menu where that food, what farm that food is coming from, right? So we wanted to celebrate that. We did that for about four years and we had um, quite a bit of, of, of good impact of just raising awareness and celebrating uh, people doing, uh, doing local food in essence. Right now, our biggest focus area is actually on trying to work with farmers, who maybe 
mostly sell direct to consumers, like through farmers markets and CSAs, who have who actually are realizing that they would like to learn how to sell into wholesale markets to be picked up by a distributor and sold into grocery stores, for instance, or who are interested in learning how to do direct store delivery, a DSD it's called. So some of them are large enough where they might have a box truck and they can do their own shipping uh, distribution of the products from their farm direct to a store for it that they develop a relationship with. Uh, in some cases, we're doing a lot of work with what are called food hubs, which are typically values, very values-based, smaller uh, distributors who are, some of, many of whom are nonprofit organizations, actually, who specialize in, and came about because of the number of very small producers that were not able to move their food from point A to point B because the larger distributors weren't willing to come to their farm and, you know, pick up a few, a couple of cases of a vegetable as opposed to several pallets worth of, of vegetables. So these food hubs have played an important role in making the marketplace more accessible to smaller producers because they're willing to do that last mile pickup and they're uh, specializing in selling into schools or selling into hospitals or places where some of the larger distributors aren't providing the option of, of fresh local food. They're only, um, you know, willing to offer commodity um, products from shipped all the way across the country, for instance. So, um, so there's a lot of that happening. And then a lot of it is also, again, as I mentioned, working with these independently owned grocery stores to try to develop a local food program where they're sourcing in more local and then learning how to merchandise that food so that then the consumer knows it's there, right? You, you, it's one thing to have it displayed well, and, but if you don't have signage that says, hey, these are local strawberries from down the road, or here's a picture of the farm that, the, that these green beans came from or this, the sweet corn came from, um, you know, they can, the store owners themselves can be doing a lot more to help educate consumers and, and drive consumers to wanting that local food um, if they if they actually bring it into their stores. And so we do a lot of work with grocers around learning how to merchandise and do taste tests and develop relationships with uh, and sort of soft contracts with local farmers as a for instance. So uh, all of those things are going on. And then we're also really working hard uh, to expand uh, the uh, infrastructure of, uh, like, say, meat processing facilities because we have a lot of small livestock producers and uh, it can be really challenging to get their animals in for processing to be harvested and, and then packaged and sold um, because there's not enough, there's, like, a really long waiting list. So some of this is expanding uh, meat processing facilities, expanding their, their capacity. It's also figuring out, like, additional warehousing and more efficient truck routes for distribution, all of these kinds of things. You have to, you have to hit it at, at every level. Like there's no one, one thing that's going to take, that's going to fix the, the current food system. Uh, and so you have to hit it from so many different from angles. And that's the power of working in a networked way is that no one organization can do all of that. Uh, but you have dozens and dozens and dozens of organizations doing it together in a collaborative way, each bringing each each using their expertise uh, and their uh, abilities, uh, you can pull off a lot more faster that way. So can you, I, mean, I feel like you're doing all kinds of things and being quite modest. I, when I was looking into this program, you know, I was looking and you all are at the forefront of a lot, a lot of what's going on. And so there are a lot of people thinking about what you all are doing and trying to emulate it. What thoughts do you have for people in other areas of the country on, on what has worked and what hasn't given your experience? Uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Um, have a plan that has a lot of stakeholder engagement to create so that there's widespread ownership uh, of that plan and people get excited and inspired to want to work together to create something different uh, and and have the the kind of food system that many of us really want to have, not what we currently have. Um, It's been handed down by large multinational agro industrial agriculture businesses. Um, And then it's, 
forming a network of these organizations uh, and partners to be able to collaboratively work on the goals of the plan and the key leverage points for change that have been identified through a planning through a robust planning process. Um, then you need to have continu- what's called continuous communication. You know, it's having so much of 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 what holds and keeps the existing system and food system in place is a lack of transparency and a lack of smaller producers understanding, you know, in quotes, sort of the rules of the marketplace. There's a lot of hidden costs, hidden fees, slotting fees, discounting that happens where smaller producers just, they really struggle to be able to sell into grocery store chains because the price point that those grocery store chains are willing to pay them is, is below their cost of production. But a lot of farmers might not know all of the different ways in which these larger uh, uh, grocery chains um, tack on all these different fees and uh, discounts and, and things that actually reduce what they actually receive for the food that they're producing. And so some of it is, like in the example of Sodexo that I gave you, some of it was, you know, we brought producers together with the, the leadership of Sodexo in our, in our New England region to have a very frank conversation about how does it work? What does the vendor contracting process actually look like? And it was majorly eye-opening for so many of us because we had no idea. And you know, like simple rules, like you can't just, show up at the back of the store on your timetable as the producer and expect that somebody's going to be there at the loading dock to take your food and, and pay you on the spot. Like there's like there's certain times of the day and there's certain quantities and there's certain turnaround times when you can expect to be paid for things. So like there's just these rules of the marketplace that have been very non-transparent to a lot of people. We just don't, people just don't know about it. So part of it, the answer is, here on continuous communication is, is as much as possible democratizing the information. You know, information is power. And when so few corporations hold the knowledge of the rules of the game and the vast majority of folks that are producing food don't know what the rules of the game is, they're, they're going to lose every time. Right? So a lot of what we do is, is uh, under, uncover like what's really going on and then share that widely so that more and more people understand it so that they can then make adjustments to their own businesses uh, to and do what they need to do in order to try to, to succeed in the marketplace. So that's, that's, that's three. Another one that's key is, is around data. And uh, if you spend some time on our website, um, com, you'll see that there's a lot of data and, and we do that again to democratize information but also it allows us to show that progress is being made. When you think about it, the average person, like you don't want to be part of something that's, that's like a losing proposition. You want to be part of something that's, that's being successful. So if, if, we're, if we are making progress, we want to tell people about that so that they can see that they're part of something bigger than just themselves. And it's something that is making improvements and things are getting better. And, um, and that's a part of the, of the sort of the recipe of, of what we're doing. And then finally, um, it's this um, notion of what we call a, a, what's known as a backbone organization. Uh, and that's what my organization does for our food system uh, and the, the farm to plate effort, um, which, as I said, is a multi-organizational uh, initiative. We serve as kind of a backshop, you know, the administrative thought leader, facilitative uh, organization that helps to be the glue that allows everything to happen easier, more efficiently, faster. You know, we're the dot connectors and the weavers that help to, to help everybody work together better so that we can collectively uh, make, uh, go farther faster. And those are the, uh, those are the key components. It's, it's actually a, uh, a documented framework called the Collective Impact Framework, and we were early adopters of that framework back in 2011, and it has really served us well, and we promote it uh, to others. When, when other people call us, we say, well, you should really take a look at this framework and build build what you want to do around that because it really does it does work. 
Thank you for that. That was really interesting. I, I appreciate the insights on how you all as an organization are moving that forward and collectively. That's fantastic. I want to end with three questions uh, that are more personal. But before we get to that one last substantive question, which is you made a very powerful argument that our food system is not working and that there are benefits to individuals if they have a healthier diet. You also made an argument that if we have a better food system, that producers will be better off. I'm wondering if you can speak to the social element. Is there what kind of argument would you be would you make to suggest that a different kind of food system that meets people's health needs and producers' needs also has a social impact? How, how does it affect communities? Well, uh, it, it, ha- it has to do with, you know, in economic terms, what's known as the multiplier effect. When you, when you keep your dollars more local, meaning that you're buying food from your neighbor down the road, those dollars stay in your community and circulate and have a, a much bigger impact than, for instance, if you're you're buying a you're in Vermont and you're buying a head of, of, of lettuce or or some uh, hamburger meat that's coming from three thousand miles across the country. Those dollars are leaving the area and going to where it was produced in California or wherever. So part of it is being connected to community and having thriving rural communities where food is produced, the people who are producing it are well supported and have uh, good livelihoods. And, and quite frankly, food has always been a, uh, a uniter. You know, you think about the, the quintessential being around the kitchen table or inviting people over for a potluck or having a, a community celebration. You know, we still have a lot of that happening in Vermont. We have granges where there's community suppers, you know, there's fire departments that have chicken barbecues (laughs) happening throughout the summer as a fundraiser, but it brings people together. And food is that, because we all have to eat, food is a uniter. And bringing people together across the the dinner table, uh, across the picnic table, across, um, you know, in in a big festival, for instance, with a lot of food festivals, a lot of beer festivals, um, it creates that sense of community and um, connection and uh, and sort of love uh, of, of that that experience. Um, and and so that that's a big part of it as well. It's it's the economic, it's the environmental issues um, connected to our food system, wanting to do it in a more production in a, in a more regenerative uh, way, but then also the distributive way of, of being able to ensure that everybody is both able to access the food. And then if you're producing the food, you're earning enough uh, for what you're, you're producing. So you're not, you're not getting uh, you know, prices that are below the cost of your production. And it's something we need to all learn about more and unpack um, how we got here. Right. I mean, I think, I think what's important to know is like we didn't just get to our current food system overnight. It, it has happened over the last 50 years in particular, which means that it's going to take time to shift and change and become more of what we want it to be in this next 50 year period. And that's going to involve a lot more people being involved uh, in the food system, people understanding where their food comes from, making values choices about the food that they purchase or acquire or grow and, um, and making sure that everybody has access to it, you know, that everybody needs to be able to eat. Yeah, that's really well said. Thank you so much for those perspectives. I really appreciate that. And I, I just want to end with some, a uh, quick couple of personal questions for you. I'm wondering, what do you see in society that gives you inspiration and energy either in the food system or beyond? I think really, uh, community and a, a sense that we can, we can affect change by working together. And, you know, in the food system, people here in Vermont anyways, like you go to a big gathering of, of um, food system planners and doers, for instance, and it's a very happy group of people <laughs> because they're passionate about food and really, uh, you know, they have been turned on to like, what does a real fresh homegrown or locally grown tomato tastes like, you know, that's in season as compared to something that you get in a large chain supermarket that was picked basically green and, and ripened so sort of on the truck across the country that then lands in 
and a, and a bin that is going to then be is something that's going to maybe last on the shelf for several weeks. But by the time it gets to your your salad, for instance, it, it just it tastes like cardboard. You know, <laughs> you know the same thing with like fresh local strawberries or fresh local blueberries or apples in season or grass fed a grass fed hamburger uh, meat as compared to a uh, you know, a feedlot in, in, in California um, uh, meat. I mean, when you do side-by-side taste tests, it's really hard not to taste the difference. I was actually, last just last Saturday, I was, uh, we've been part of a project um, trying to um, help dairy farmers to do some uh, genetic crossing between Holstein dairy cows and beef uh, cattle as a way of, of, of increasing the, the premium price that they can get for the animals once they no longer are dairy animals and, and become uh, meat for steak and hamburgers. And, and uh, we had a little taste test at one of the farms that's participating in the pilot, and they did, um, they had three different uh, types. They had a traditional uh, piece of steak, all the same cuts, you know, uh, but a traditional steak from um, an animal that was raised someplace unknown, uh, your sort of traditional supermarket, uh, commodity type, uh, steak, and then a, a mixed breed of Wagyu and, and usually a Holstein that was more locally raised and then a hundred percent Wagyu, um, beef. And it, you literally could taste the difference, the same cut, you know, it's like a New York strip or whatever in all three cases. But if you do side by side taste tests, you, you can really, really, truly know the difference. And people who get hooked on cooking, like we did, a lot of people got really hooked on cooking, as you said, during the pandemic, and they started cooking for themselves again, and they started like slowing down and, and really tasting their food and being proud of the fact that they were learning how to make sourdough bread or whatever they were doing or getting inspired by the Great British Bake Off, for instance, and, and, and learning how to, to make fresh things for themselves. Like there is a transformation that can happen and it inspires people to want to learn more. It inspires people to want to eat better um, and share more of, of food with, with their friends and neighbors and such um, grow an extra row for people who are economically struggling. For instance, it really helps, I think, connect people to community more, which is I think really in this day and age, a lot of what people are feeling has been missing in their lives is that, is that connection to, the people in their community. Thank you so much for sharing that. Absolutely. Have you read or seen or listened to anything recently that really changed your view or made you think differently about the work you do? Not really. Sophie Howe, who was the uh, first uh, commissioner of the uh, Wellbeing of Future Generations Commission in the, in the country of Wales, was uh, just in Vermont for a couple of days, and we introduced her to some legislators and a bunch of students at the University of Vermont, um, and she was talking about sharing the what they've been doing over in Wales with really planning their economy and their communities, society around a much longer term view about the well being of a future generation. And you know, listening to Sophie give her talk a couple of times, I think it mostly it didn't change my view. It just made it much. Uh, it, it just redoubled my commitment to be working in the way in which we're working for the things that we're working for. Like it, 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 it really helped um, strengthen my resolve, so to speak, that you know, we're really onto something here. It's really what people want. It's what the planet needs. Um, it's, it is the right way uh, to be considering how we, how we take care of each other. Uh, and really move from a, you know, since the 80s with Ronald Reagan, the me, the me generations and the me economy to a we economy, uh, which is really what we need. And you think about the number of the, the new statistics out about eco-anxiety and about loneliness levels and our, our opioid epidemics, so many people struggling um, and feeling despair and mental health crises uh, in our communities. A lot of that is because we've lost connection with each other. We've lost connection with the earth. 
And I think any, any work that is leading to helping people to reconnect with themselves, reconnect with others, and reconnect with the planet um, is the right work to be doing at this day and age. And so it's more what I gravitate towards is, is finding people who are doing those kinds of things because that's sort of the added fuel to the inspiration that I already experienced. Oh, that's fantastic. And then lastly, you you know, you're doing a lot of work. It's very, a lot of challenges and so forth. I'm wondering what you do in your life that gives you a sense of peace and joy. Uh, meditation, actually. I, uh, I, um, back in 2009, I, I um, became uh, very active um, in learning, studying and, and practicing Buddhism. And uh, that has really helped me to stay uh, grounded and focused and nourished, uh, nourished my soul and, uh, my being and informs a lot of, of what I do and how I do what I do in a day-to-day way. Well, thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for coming onto the show. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated it. It is such a treat speaking to people who really have vast knowledge and can speak so clearly and effectively as Ellen can. I really loved the presentation she gave, the conversation, the insights. I learned a lot. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. As always, I want to thank Dan Phillips and Cody Bayless, the executive producers of Crossing the Chasm, and Anodyne Diversion for supplying the music. And as always, I want to thank you all for listening. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show, and I hope you can join us again on Crossing the Chasm. 